Please open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I thank the three young men who read three psalms to us this morning. Psalm 2, 45 and 110. Three of the Messianic Psalms. That means a psalm pertaining in prophecy to the Messiah. And they're also called regal psalms in that they're describing the Messiah as king. And there are more. You should know what your favorite messianic psalm is of the 150. You should know what your favorite regal psalm is of the psalms. If you know the book of Psalms, you're going to have favorites that God speaks to you through. We want to be thankful for those psalms. I want to read in Isaiah chapter 9, two verses, one that you're very familiar with and the other that you're not so familiar with, but it pertains to our subject this morning. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it, with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen Amen and amen. Let us pray. Our glorious and holy Father in heaven, we thank Thee, that a son was given and a child was born to fulfill the sure mercies of David and to take the throne of his father David and to take his kingdom to rule in righteousness and judgment with justice and peace forevermore. We thank Thee for Thy Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in His name that we humble ourselves before Thee And open thy word and seek to learn about him. We thank thee, Heavenly Father, that we have not been left captives in the kingdom of darkness under the reign of that king who deceived our first parents and brought us all under thy just and holy condemnation. We thank thee that thou didst send a king to rescue us And that king, though equal with God, laid down his life for us. And we thank thee that he's coming again for us. O Lord, this day, have mercy upon our foolish souls, our cold hearts, and bless us by your grace to look afresh into heaven and see on the throne of David the Son of Man sitting there, 
and that we might dedicate our lives to serve Him and to love Him all the days of our lives. Heavenly Father, forgive us for being foolish and slothful citizens of Your kingdom. And bless us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and by Your Holy Spirit to love our Savior more. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that the Lord reigneth. Let the earth tremble. There is nothing too hard for Thee. And we are thankful that no matter what troubles we might face in our lives, no matter what enemies, we have a King who is able and willing to deliver us. And we have a King who has said He will never leave us nor forsake us. Father in heaven, we thank Thee. Bless us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. You are well familiar with the words, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Those names and titles of our Lord Jesus Christ cover a wide array of benefits that we have. But verse 7 is attached to verse 6 by virtue of the fact that the first half of verse 6 is about the government being upon His shoulder. That means the Lord Jesus Christ would bear the weight of the government of God's kingdom. And then verse 7 elaborates on that by saying, of the increase of His government, that is the rule of Jesus Christ, will have no end in its breadth or its duration. And of His peace, the Lord Jesus Christ has made peace for us through the blood of His cross. He's going to make peace with His enemies by destroying them. There will be peace. It will be a long-lasting peace. And it will be a thorough peace. And notice that it will be upon the throne of David. The throne of David. There are no words wasted in your Bible. If you wonder why First and Second Samuel is then repeated in First Kings, it's for you to know about David so that you can appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's why. You are told more about David than the next ten characters in the Bible combined. If you look and read all the chapters and details that we're told about David. But Jesus Christ would sit upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, and He would order it, and He would establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, from when that Son was born, forevermore. And what's going to make all of that happen? Though the world would be opposed to it, King Herod tried to kill Him. Though the devil would be opposed to it, he tried to stop Him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform it. And when it says the Lord of hosts, it's referring to the commander of the armies of heaven. The Lord of hosts. All the angels in heaven obey and follow and serve the God of heaven. And He sent those angels to protect the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is sitting on the throne of David today. When you read your Bibles and you come across a passage like this, You do not need to wonder about its interpretation. You take it right into the New Testament because everything is pointing forward to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on a throne. You have a king 
the likes of which this world has never seen. I wish I could describe him to you. You have in your minds the idea of a king from novels and movies. You've never seen one. No one's ever seen a king like the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you a few minutes with Nebuchadnezzar and you'd appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never seen real authority. Our president has to ask permission to sneeze. Our president can't do anything without the papers the next morning railing on him. Our president can't do anything without his opponents in Congress opposing him and defying him and questioning him. But a king, by the definition of the term, doesn't have to answer to any but God. He is the sole ruler of a domain. We've never seen such power. I wish this morning that you could have in your minds a king sitting upon his throne with the power of life and death. If his head looked displeased, if his face was displeased, they would put a bag over your head and leave you out and kill you there on the spot. Those are the kings of the Bible. We read about King Ahasuerus, that his wife Esther, whom he loved very much, she wanted all of her friends to fast and pray for three days and three nights before she dared enter his courtroom and hope that he would raise his scepter toward her and she would be allowed to approach the throne. If she entered that courtroom and he did not raise the scepter, she would die. That is authority and absolute despotic power that we've never imagined. We've never seen anything like that. Listen, our president, if his wife told him to sleep on the couch, you know what room he'd be sleeping in that night. That's the 21st century for you. I know of one queen that tried that. That's the one that came before Esther. Queen Vashti told Ahasuerus, I'm not going to come and appear at your royal banquet. And that was her last day as queen. Because she was put out of her office and replaced with the world's greatest beauty contest that there ever was, winner take all, and the winner was Esther, the little orphan girl. I wish I could describe to you an army on horseback. Because, see, the Bible wants you to see an army on horseback when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Bible closes, it describes an army in heaven. John said, I saw heaven opened. Do you want to know what it looks like? There isn't a lady with long hair and a beard knocking at a door. There isn't a baby in a manger. And there isn't a naked man hanging on a crucifix. There is a prince in glorious terms sitting on a white horse at the front of an army on white horses. I wish I could portray for your minds an army of horsemen stretching to the right as far as you can see. Stretching to the left as far as you can see. War horses, stirrup to stirrup, prancing forward, waiting to face the enemy, tingling with excitement, prancing with energy, waiting to be let go, to fly toward the enemy and engage in battle. And out front, one spectacular white horse sitting on his back is the Word of God. Clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. 
dipped in blood for the ransom of your sins and for mine. And blood splattering up from the feet of His horse because He is treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Our brother is going to read this passage to you as we open our second service in a little while. I wish you could see him that sits on that horse. His eyes are as a flame of fire. His hair is white as snow. His feet are like burning brass. And out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. There is on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is your King. He is coming for us. What in the world is there to be afraid of if you have a king like that? Death to him is nothing because he's already destroyed death. He's destroyed death so thoroughly that we can mock it. Oh, death! Where is your sting? Because he's destroyed death. He has the keys of death and of hell because he governs it all. And He's coming for us. He'll not lose a single one of the citizens of His kingdom. And I want to preach to you today about the blessed and only potentate, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, but God has not chosen to use visual aids for the preaching of His gospel. I would bring them. I would have a DVD player set up and trying to show you a picture. But the Bible wants the picture in your heart and mind to be based on His written Word. And the blessing of the Holy Spirit for you to see it with clarity. You have a king. Are you living like you have a king? Are you obeying your king? Are you praising your king? Do you love your king? You need a king. Let me tell you that. The greatest drama ever imagined. Not imagined because it's impossible to imagine. The greatest drama is being played out on the stage of the universe. God did not need Satan. God did not need you. He did not need me. But God chose to create a devil. But He didn't create him as a devil in the beginning. He created him as Lucifer. The anointed cherub of God. The highest of the angelic host. That being was a traitor. That being undermined God's authority in heaven by taking... Oh, with God's permission, grant you. That being, that traitor, Lucifer, took a great number of the angels with him and declared open war against the God of heaven. He said, I will be like the Most High. And so we have in this drama, the God creator of all against the devil. The devil got our first parents. He lied to our first mother, our first father, Followed our first mother. And so the the whole race was damned. And we were under the power of that king. It's a king you have not seen before. His name is the serpent. The devil. Satan. And we were lost. And the Bible leaves us condemned under him. If it were not for another king. And the Lord God of heaven raised up another king. But I want to tell you that He raised up that other king from among us. One of our brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin. But He has put that man on His throne in heaven. And all angels, principalities, and powers are subject unto Him. 
He is King and Lord over all. And He has delivered us from the wrath to come, and He's coming for us. Brethren, you have a King. He is the blessed and only potentate, and He's coming soon to reveal Himself to this world. The rest of the world goes ignorantly on. Most are in their beds. They're getting up to entertain themselves today. We are here because of a bond we have. We have heard the joyful sound that we have a King named the Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard the joyful sound that He has saved us by His death on the cross of Calvary to pay for our sins and that He's coming for us and we shall live forever in heaven with Him. That's what binds us together. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. How many times does that word kingdom occur in the Bible? Kingdom. The dominion of a king. That's what the word means. And throughout the Bible we read about kings and kingdoms because the Lord wants you to have a picture of Jesus Christ, His Son, as a king. And so that's our topic for today. That's our topic. You know, David was a great king. Doesn't everybody love David? If you don't love David, you've got a problem. Everybody loves David. That's why we have 1 Samuel telling us about David. And 2 Samuel telling us about David. And 1 Kings. We can read about David. Lots of details about David. We love the way he acted. We love the enemies he killed. We loved his conquering triumphs. And the Bible tells us more about him than anyone else. Because Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of David. And in his kingdom. Let me add another term to this. The the word Zion in your Bible is Z-I-O-N. It is a hill. It is a small mountain on which there was a fortress built and which David took in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 7. It tells us, and so the stronghold of Zion was taken by David. The Jebusites lived there. So impregnable was this fortress on the top of a mountain. And if you could see the mountains rising out of the plain around Jordan up to this fortress on top, you would say it was impregnable. Titus did. David took the stronghold of Zion. That's the first time we have the word Zion in the Bible. The fortress on top of a mountain called Zion within the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built and expanded until it surrounded that mountain. But that's what Zion means. It is a military fortress on a mountain. So whenever you read in the Bible about strength coming out of Zion to deliver you, that is a picture of God and His fortress coming to help you. Zion. In the New Testament, when a Hebrew word is brought into the Greek, you don't have a Z, you have an S. So whenever we find Zion in the New Testament, it's S-I-O-N. We're going to see that we are coming to Mount Zion. In this church, we are members of Mount Zion. We have an army around us in the air that you cannot see and in heaven above that is protecting you every day of your life and is going to see you all the way into heaven. We are coming to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. Brethren, rejoice with me today. Jerusalem is our city and it's above. It's not that little ghetto over there in the Middle East. It is a mighty city in heaven. That's Hebrews chapter 12. That will be read to you as well. Rejoice with me today 
about the Lord Jesus Christ. My job is His ambassador. I don't preach for any denominational board. I preach because I have to bring to you a message from the King of Zion's Hill, the Son of David. I bring His terms. I bring His terms. I don't speak out of my own ability. I don't speak out of my own thoughts. I bring you the terms of the High King of Heaven. This is what He has done for you, and this is what He expects you to do for Him. If you want to choose to have it your way, He will trample you under His feet. He is the High King of Heaven, and He apologizes to no one. He compromises for no one. He's a glorious Savior. He said Himself when He was on earth, If you'll fall on Me, you'll be broken. If I have to fall on you, I'll grind you to powder. I'm His ambassador. He has sent us His terms. And His terms are wonderful. They're called the Gospel. The terms of this King are called the Gospel. And do you know what the word Gospel means? The good news, the glad tidings of what this King has done for us. And let that world watch its cartoons. Let that world watch its Hollywood make-believe stories. We've got a drama here. And the concluding chapter of it is that we win. We win with our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we shall reign with Him forever and ever. Praise His name. Hallelujah. I want you to remember something. God is God. Jehovah is our Creator. This is important. Jehovah is an eternal spirit. No man has ever seen Him. No man ever shall see Him. He's an invisible spirit. He dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. He dwells in the thick darkness. Take whatever description you like the best. I like them both. You say they're contradictory. Oh, they're complementary. I love them. God is God. He's a spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is a man. The Lord Jesus Christ is a man. God has given the kingdom of the universe to a man. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Yes, Jesus Christ is God. No one should doubt that about where we stand on that subject. The fullness of the God had dwelt in Him bodily. But that body had a human nature, and that human nature was a son of David by biological descent and by legal descent through Joseph. And that man is on the throne of heaven. One of our race, one of our brothers, has been raised up and promoted over all principalities and powers, and he's going to judge them. And we're going to judge them with him. We're going to trample Satan underfoot with him. We're going to judge with him. And we will reign with Him forever and ever. There is a King in heaven. I wrote you yesterday and said that if the President of our country arrived at this little assembly with his motorcade and his security detachment and they came in here and secured all exits and entrances of this building and he came in here and spoke to you and said something to you personally and handed you a personal letter, you'd be glowing like you were a light bulb. Because of the authority of that man. 
But that man has no authority, nor has he, nor can he write you a letter like this king that I represent and stand before you this morning has written this letter to you. Now, why aren't you all glowing? It is a shame. Lord, save us. We sang in a song recently, Awake us, O Lord. Because you know what? We're sleeping. In comparison to that king. I will tell you, and I've told you this a thousand times, one second. One second after you meet him, you'll say, could I go back to December 18th of the year 2005 and hear that message one more time? And, oh Lord, could I go back and live out the days after that message differently? I hope we never have to say that, because I hope we get gripped today by the King that we have in heaven. For those of you that have ever been around the president or been around someone very important, you have seen and felt the power, the authority, and the glory. But none of us have ever seen anything like the king of glory. Amen. Never. What is a kingdom? It's the dominion of a king. That's why it ends with dumb. A fiefdom is a sphere of fiefs. A lorddom is a sphere of lords. A kingdom is the sphere of a king's authority. So you want to remember that. Remember the name Jesus. The name Jesus in our English language came to us from Greek, which came to us from Hebrew. The name of that child that Mary had was Joshua. Mary never pronounced the word Jesus. It's impossible. It's a minor point. But Mary never said the word Jesus. We're English. She wasn't English. She was Hebrew, and she spoke Hebrew. But his name was Joshua, which is Jehovah is salvation. When you look at Joshua with its full spelling in the Old Testament, it's J-E-H-O, Jeho, Shua. Jeho meaning a shortened version for Jehovah, and Shua being salvation. Jehovah is salvation. You say, I thought we always went to the English. We do. Watch. Matthew one twenty one. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Amen. Two verses later, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Amen. So what is Jesus? Jehovah is salvation. God with us will save his people from their sins. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the King James Bible in English. His name is Jesus. His title is Christ. But we put it together as a full name for Him. His title is Christ, which means anointed one. The Bible tells us what word Christ translates because it says, this is the Messiah, which is by interpretation, Christ. Twice in our New Testaments. So we know that Christ is the New Testament version for Messiah, and Messiah was the prince that was to come to deliver Israel. Messiah and Christ both mean the anointed one of God. Because God anointed all men to important offices, and He anointed the Lord Jesus Christ to His office. He wasn't anointed with just oil out of a bottle. He was anointed with the Holy Ghost above all His fellows. Because there was no office even close to the office of the King of Zion. We call Him Lord. In our Old Testaments, Lord is capitalized for Jehovah. Sometimes it isn't capitalized and it means absolute ruler. 
absolute master, supreme master. And so when we use the word Lord, we are using a title to describe our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord means supreme master. Lord is a title for a king. My Lord, the king. Those words are used in the Bible. I want you to understand what you're saying when you say the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name of a man born in Bethlehem of Judea about the year 4 B.C. Approximately 2,009 years ago, he was and is the Son of God. He was born of a virgin by the power of the highest. He is the Christ promised by God, the anointed deliverer of his people, and he is Lord of all. That's what it means when we say the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that the Apostle Paul liked that combination of terms? Have you ever taken a peek at his epistles? Does he ever use the combination Lord Jesus Christ? Does he, would he get a redundant from most English teachers on his paper? Yes, he would, and I love him for it. Because he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he live like he loved the Lord Jesus Christ? Did he write like he loved him? How can you read the Apostle Paul without seeing his love for the Lord Jesus Christ? So we've looked at the word kingdom, Jesus Christ, Lord, and Zion. And I hope that you're already thinking, wow, when I go, go through the Bible, I see so much about a king and a kingdom, and I see so much about Zion. And I see the scepter as we've read it here in Isaiah 9. It's speaking of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Shriners, the Shriners are a branch of the Masons. We're totally opposed to everything they stand for, and everything, I mean everything. The Shriners call their leaders imperial potentates. For any of you that are familiar with the Shriners, you know the Shriners of the Arabian Egyptian temple in whatever city they're located. But they call their leaders imperial potentate. That's why I like the Bible. I love the Bible. Amen. Do you know what my king says? And his title is in the Bible? He is the blessed and only potentate. Amen. Potentate. What does the word potentate mean? We sang it this morning, and it's in our King James Bibles in First Timothy 6.15. Potentate. That's someone that is potent. If you're potent, you're full of power. If you're impotent, you have no power. You understand? A potentate is one with all the power. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the blessed. Because He's a wonderful potentate, and He's the only potentate, so no one else should be called potentate. Because I represent the blessed and only potentate, and you love Him, and we are bound together to serve Him, and the blessed and only potentate is coming for us. Do you love Him this morning? Have you lived for Him this past week? Will you live for Him this next week? I charge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you believe that today in the salvation formula is offered? They do not want to require people getting saved to have to accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I've told you this before. I want you to understand what's going on in Christianity today. And I mean among conservative fundamentalist churches. Because they're the only ones that even care about getting saved. But they don't know anything about getting saved. Their little salvation formulas for getting saved, they have a great controversy about those formulas. Do we have to admit that Jesus is Lord? 
Or can we just accept Him as our Savior? If we just accept Him as our Savior, will that be good enough to save a person? That is called the Lordship controversy. It is a very major controversy. There's no formula that's ever saved anyone. Except the formula from heaven that says live. When Jesus Christ says live, you're alive, you're saved, and you'll never be lost. But you don't mumble some little phrase and get yourself saved. And you especially don't do that and have a question mark or refuse to say that He's Lord. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. And I represent Him to you this morning. A true king answers to no one. The Bible tells us that our king is a king after the order of Melchizedek because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was not only a priest, he was a king. His name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. How do I know that? My English Bible in Hebrews 7, verses 1 and 2. He's also the king of Salem. He was the king of Jerusalem ahead of time. King of peace, the Bible tells me, is what that means. And the last part of Jerusalem is shalom for peace. As you can tell by the Bible's own definition of its own words, Jesus is king of righteousness and he's king of peace. Because he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This might be a repetitive part of my ministry. Go ahead and fault me for it. I'll answer to my king that I'm going to represent him. And as we sang in the last, as we read to, had read to us in the last verse of Psalm 45, I'm going to make him known to all generations. If I do anything with my measly little life, it will be to announce that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I don't tell you about a baby in a manger. There's not one word in the Bible to, to cause us to have some celebration to remember him in a manger. The Bible tells us where he wants to be seen. And that's as a king on the throne of David, seated at the right hand of God Almighty, angels and principalities reporting to him, or on his white horse. If you catch the vision this morning, if you hear the word of the Lord, you're going to be much holier in all matters of sobriety. Because you don't mess around the presence of a king. You're going to be holier in all matters of attire. You wouldn't dare dress down in the presence of a king. You're going to be holy in reverence because this king says he must be worshipped with reverence and godly fear in the New Testament. You're going to be holy in your relationships as I've preached the last two Sundays because this king gave those orders. You're going to be full of praise Because he's worthy of it. It's so pitiful that we can see a military parade. We can see a football team run onto a field. And our hearts can swell with pride and praise. Unbelievable. That is disgusting. What should they swell with for the God of heaven and for his son Jesus Christ? You know that feeling of power when you see a little demonstration of it. Well, just think of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. When He was on earth, they said, what a word is this? 
exclamation point. He even commands the winds and the waves and they obey His voice. He commands the evil spirits and they come out immediately and they worship Him. Oh, what power! And it ought to fill us with praise so that when we sing these songs, instead of standing there meandering around in your mind and with your vocal cords, you want to burst the windows in this place with praise to the high King of Heaven. It'll change your life. It'll give you confidence in prayer. This king can give you and do anything for you that you need. And he's willing to do so. It'll make you patient in tribulation. Because what can ever face you that you can't go through with the king beside you? It'll make you fearless with your enemies. It'll help you to defend the truth. Because why wouldn't you want to defend the truth of the high king of heaven? Let's go to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. I want you to know that from the very beginning, there was another king that came and took us captive. You say, is he really called a king in the Bible? He sure is. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 11. And there was a king over the bottomless pit, and his name was Apollyon and Abaddon. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the prince of this world. And you willingly were a subject to him. You were born a subject to him. And you followed him and you obeyed him. And we needed a king. And God promised a king. And all of this, this was not reactive on the part of God. This was his design from the beginning. It is glorious. Amen. It is glorious. He's given us the script, and we can read the final chapter. Right. And do you know what the final chapter tells us? He, he gains the whole victory. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Wow. That's the gospel. We were ruined by sin. Captive at the hands of the devil. Chained up in his palace. I'm using Bible words. In his palace. But the stronger man came and destroyed his palace and rescued us out of it and took us to be his own. Amen. Amen. I want you to see in the Bible some prophecies of the king. Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is on his deathbed. And he's going through his twelve sons and giving them blessings for their lives. Or, so you might call some of these curses. Because they weren't very much in the way of a blessing. But he comes to his fourth son, Judah. And in verse 8, he says, Judah, just imagine all these boys lined up around their father's bed. There's been one authority in that family as long as he's been alive, and it's been Jacob. One authority. He gets to son number 4 in verse 8, and he says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah, you're going to be the ruler. You're going to be the leader. You're going to be holding the throat of all of your enemies. And your brothers are going to bow down because you're going to be the ruler. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Who is going to mess with Judah? The question, what's the answer? 
No one is going to mess with Judah. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Brethren, Shiloh is a term, is a place in Israel. Here it's made to represent a person of peace. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Shiloh come, and to him shall the gathering of the people be. Jesus Christ came and gathered all the elect of God into one body by his death on the cross. And in the dispensation, the fullness of times, he's going to gather all of our bodies out of this earth's dust and take us all into heaven. This is a prophecy from a couple thousand years B.C. about the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he is described as a scepter, which is a figure of speech called metonymy, representing the king that holds the scepter. The, the symbol of regal power. The scepter was a stick that they held in their hands, but it wasn't a stick cut from a tree. It was a stick of gold encrusted with diadems. And so the scepter, the authority and the rulership would not depart from Judah until the Lord Jesus Christ would come. Brethren, rejoice. As early as Genesis 49, twelve sons stood around a bed, and the fourth son was told that from him would come the ruler that would be our king. We needed a king. We were in desperate straits. Brethren, all you need to do is go to a funeral and you'll understand you need a king. You need a king that can come and defeat death. Forget poverty. Forget disease. Forget, let's not let a single child be lost, but let's get them all a high school diploma. Forget accomplishments like that, which they can't even achieve. We need a king that can come and destroy death. Don't you know that? You're racing toward it. Couldn't you tell this morning when you got out of bed? You're heading for death. We need a king to save us from death. We have one, brethren. He's going to gather all the people together and he'll not lose a single one of them. Because he is a great, victorious, and successful king. Genesis 49.10. Don't forget that verse. You want to remember some of these prophecies about Jesus Christ. Look at Numbers chapter 24. Numbers 24. In Numbers 24, we have a false prophet named Balaam. But Balaam couldn't control all his prophecies. Sometimes the Lord just took over Balaam and made him prophesy the truth. And let's read some of the truth that he prophesied. Poor Balak. Can you imagine the king of Moab forking over the big bucks? Balaam said, I want some oxen up here. They haul them all the way up on top of a mountain, kill them, offer a sacrifice. They go through all these gymnastics for Balaam, and Balak is just rubbing his hands. They're looking out over all the tents of Israel, and Balaam's about to curse Israel. And Balak thinks, oh, I can't wait to hear this one. Yeah. You want to hear it? Here's what it sounds like. Genesis chapter 24. Let's get verse 15. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open, 
Can you imagine Balak hearing this grand introduction? That was a grand introduction. It said, the Almighty gave me this vision. I had my eyes open. I was in a trance. I saw a vision. And the Almighty gave me the words I'm about to say. And Balak's excitement is rising, is rising to a feverish pitch. And we come to verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. Amen, Amen, brethren. Amen. Poor King Balak. He just got cursed in the name of the Lord. Because the Almighty gave Balaam the inspired words to say, and he saw a king coming. And yes, you could say it was David, because David did smite Moab. But it's fulfilled fully in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has struck all the Gentiles of the world, and He's taken some of them captives home with Him. And we're some of them, brethren. Verse 18, And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. Amen and amen. My king overruled King Balak. My king and your king gave Balaam the words to say, and they were a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the destruction of the very nations that were trying to get him to bless them. Praise his great and glorious name. He turns kings and nations upside down because the Lord reigneth. Second Samuel chapter 23. Second Samuel 23. The Bible is filled with prophecies of a coming king. We need a king. We wish for a president that would end a war in Iraq. We wish for a president that would fight crime. We need a king that can destroy sin, death, and the grave, and hell. We look in the Bible and we see David, a man after God's own heart. And we think what a wonderful leader he would be. And you're right. David was a man after God's own heart. But David was a sinner. And so we need a better king than David. And here's what David has to say about that issue in 2 Samuel 23. And this is on his deathbed. The first verse tells us, now these be the last words of David. And he gives quite an introduction himself. And then he says in verse 3, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. David describes this coming king under the picture of a beautiful sunrise. Powerful, brilliant, glorious, driving away darkness, driving away cold, bringing light and heat. The beauty of a sunrise. And then he says, as the sun shines upon the earth and brings up all those shoots of new grass, the growth, the prosperity of a true king who reigns in righteousness. And then David has to say in verse 5, 
Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. David had full confidence that though his family did not meet those conditions, God was going to raise up from his loins a son that would sit on his throne and would save him and his house. And that was all his desire and all his salvation. A coming king in the family line of David. Here it is, David's deathbed. Thoughts. Now, brethren, if Jacob was speaking of Jesus Christ as a king on his deathbed, and David is speaking of Jesus Christ as a king on his deathbed, I would dare say that it's probably good thinking that as you approach your deathbed, you think of Jesus Christ your king. There is no enemy that can touch you. Haven't you ever read Romans chapter 8? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor anything can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? Our King. Christ Jesus our King. Nothing can separate us from God's love and all of the promises that He has for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read this morning, or had read to us, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, and Psalm 110. I hope that you know those psalms well enough that you can rejoice in what was said. Psalm 2, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. All the kings of the earth despise the Lord Jesus Christ. Herod and Pontius Pilate got together to put him to death. But the God of heaven said, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And when did he do it? He did it when he said these words. This day have I begotten thee. And that was at his resurrection when he went into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. There is an aspect of our Lord Jesus Christ's life that is overlooked. And that is his resurrection and his ascension and his coronation in heaven. You say, where does it say he was crowned? Hebrews chapter 3. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. I present to you a crown king. Not a crucifix king, not a manger king, and not a begging lady with a beard in a garden. I present to you a crowned king. And we read about that in those psalms. I don't have time to preach through each one of those psalms. I wish I did. This series would last all of 2006. I've preached Psalm 45 to you before. I've opened Psalm 2 to you before. I've opened Psalm 110 to you before. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That day's coming. When all the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ will formally, visually, finally be made the footstool of the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel saw a vision, and Nebuchadnezzar saw the vision, but Daniel explained it in Daniel chapter 2, that the God of heaven would set up a kingdom in the days of the Roman kings. And John the Baptist burst on the scene in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1, preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prophecies. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. When you're reading through some of these prophets, 
And you read about a glorious age coming with a great king reigning in righteousness. You are reading about the Lord Jesus Christ primarily. If there happens to be a temporal king of Judah that's under consideration, it's only a shadow, only a type of what is coming. But some passages are too plain for anyone to miss. Let me give you a couple. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 20, verse 5. Verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And your King James translators put those in all caps. The Lord our righteousness. A king is coming to sit on David's throne that would reign in justice and righteousness, and Israel would dwell safely. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible is this prophecy of a king coming to this earth. I shall see him, but not now. A king was coming. And so the prophecies lead us up all the way through the Bible. The last one, let's go to the little book of Micah. There's many prophecies. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. We want the little book of Micah. This is the passage that when the wise men came into Jerusalem and all Jerusalem was stirred by their purpose for their visit, King Herod called together the scribes and said, Where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they knew Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And here's what it says. Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. The thousands of Judah are all the little towns and villages of Judah. Though Bethlehem was a very small one among them, out of Bethlehem came the man that was to be the ruler of Israel. Now can you imagine being Herod the Great? Herod the Great. Herod the Great, sitting on your throne in Israel. And the scribes read to you Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and it says, Out of Bethlehem is going to come the ruler that is my ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now this is the amazing thing. If it were not for the grace of God that opens our eyes and opens our ears and opens our hearts, we would be like Herod the Great. Do you know how Herod the Great responded? I'll kill every child in the vicinity of Bethlehem two years of age and under. I will get rid of that competitor. Did it dent... The plan of God? Did it delay the plan of God? If you see and believe 
that there is a king in heaven who did spend 33 years on this wor- in this world, on this earth, God has opened your eyes, ears, and heart to see, hear, and believe that. Right. It's a mystery of the kingdom of heaven that there is a king that rules heaven and earth and his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth and he is Lord of all. Come over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Here's Gabriel telling Mary what kind of a son she's going to have. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Does that match up with everything we've read so far? Amen. There is This is the fulfillment coming into place. But Jesus was born and laid in a manger. Mary gave birth to him in a stable. There was no room in the inn. He humbled himself to those humble beginnings for your sake and mine. I tell you this morning, though, on his behalf, he is no longer in a stable and no longer in a manger. And there's plenty of room for him in heaven above because he sits on the throne of heaven. Do you adore the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? He is your king. He shall reign forever. And notice whose throne he'll sit on. David's throne. Because he's the son of David. And he's the son of the highest. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, when God brought forth Jesus into the world, he issued this command in heaven. Let all the angels of God worship him. Do you know how hard that was for an angel? Not when God said to do it. Because a man is, is below an angel. Angels have so much more power and intelligence and wisdom than men have, and they all had to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Let all the angels of God worship Him. Whenever I find the angels that followed the devil meeting Jesus on earth, now they worshiped Him too. Because they know what's in store for them. Wise men came from the east to find he that is born King of the Jews. No wonder Herod was unsettled. When he entered Jerusalem before his crucifixion, we can read about it in John chapter 12. It's worth looking at it. John chapter 12. The little people of Israel welcomed Jesus Christ on a donkey into Jerusalem. John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet Him, and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel! 
that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. John here is telling you, when I saw it happen, I didn't appreciate its significance. But after Jesus Christ was glorified, and that's his coronation in heaven, after he was glorified, we then remembered the events that took place and the scriptures they fulfilled. But notice this, these people cried out, Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. They announced Jesus Christ as King. This was during his lifetime. Was there ever a king like him, where mercy and truth were met together, and righteousness and peace had kissed? No king ever like the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, but unless a man is born again, he can't even see that kingdom. Jesus, when he met Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, We know that thou art come from God. And Jesus said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It takes the new birth to even recognize Jesus when he was here in this world. Pilate put a superscription over him in three languages. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And that was after a lengthy discussion about whether he was a king or not. Pilate put the King of the Jews. Jesus had told him, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom isn't like your kingdom, Pilate. If my kingdom were like your kingdom, my servants would fight. And Pilate didn't even know what kind of servants he had. Because he could have called twelve legions of angels that would have delivered him. And it wouldn't have taken them very long with the Roman legions or garrison in the city of Jerusalem. Look at Luke chapter 24. Back a few pages. Luke 24. We have a king, brethren. And the reason we have a church, the reason we come together, our our united bond in the gospel is because we all believe we have a king named Jesus and he's coming for us. And he laid down his life to pay for our sins. To deliver us from the works of the devil and from the justice of God. In Luke chapter 24, in verse 26, he's on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. And they're bemoaning the fact that their Lord had been crucified. And Jesus said in verse 26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Why don't you get the whole picture? You're missing part of it. Jesus needed to suffer these things. Have you forgotten Isaiah 53 that said that He was led as a lamb to the slaughter? Should He not have suffered these things and then to enter into His glory? They were hoping He would have glory right then on earth. But His glory is in heaven. Jesus Christ was going to be glorified. And here He's rebuking these disciples on the road to Emmaus because they misunderstood the timing. As He ascended up into heaven, He told His apostles, All power in heaven and in earth is given unto Me. Go therefore and teach all nations. Based on the fact that Jesus Christ 
had all power. Come over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Let's move to the coronation of this king. We've had prophecies of him. We've seen his birth briefly. We've looked at his life briefly. He was owned as king at birth. He was owned as king during his life. He was owned as king at his death. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The Lord Jesus is coming again the same way he left. However, do you understand what happened when he went up out of their sight? When he went up out of their sight in his physical body, he went all the way up into heaven and appeared in heaven in his physical body in Revelation chapter 5. When you read Revelation chapter 5, and God is sitting on the throne and has that scroll, that book with seven seals that no one can open, and then John is weeping because there's no one to open the book that has all the blessings of the everlasting covenant in it for us. The deliverance from death, eternal heaven, perpetual righteousness, His holiness, all the blessings of the covenant. No one can open the book and John wept. But then he was told, the lion of the tribe of Judah will open the book. And Jesus appears in heaven. Revelation 5 is a nanosecond after Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, because the Lord Jesus Christ arrives, and then we hear the song, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, and hath redeemed us to God. That is the connection. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I hated Mel Gibson's Passion movie is because it was nothing but an animated crucifix spending two-plus hours leaving him on a cross. Their little vague, shadowy, irreverent picture of the resurrection was pitiful and only lasted a few seconds. The Bible puts all the emphasis on His resurrection and where He is now as you progress through the revelation of God's Word. As you get toward the end, the emphasis is all on where He is now. Brethren, when He... When he raised up out of this earth's atmosphere in the presence of his disciples who saw him leave, he went straight into the presence of God and was crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At that time, he sat down at his father's right hand on the throne of David and began to rule over all angels, principalities, and powers for the benefit of his church. He didn't just go away and is lost for 2,000 years. He went away and He's ruling the universe. Oh, I want you to make that connection. That's Acts chapter 1. They see Him disappear. The next chapter, Peter is able to preach, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He was sitting on David's throne. Look at Acts chapter 2. It says in verse 34, Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. Therefore, 
being by the right hand of God exalted. Acts 2.34. How much time is there between Acts 1 and Acts 2? Ten days. Ten days. Jesus was seen 40 days, wasn't he? About seven days. It was exactly seven days because there were three days in the, in the grave. Forty days Jesus was seen of witnesses that he had risen from the dead and the day of Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover, three in the ground, 40 being witnessed by witnesses and seven days while they replaced Judas Iscariot with Matthias and then Peter could get up and preach a message. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. Because in that space of time, which happened immediately after Acts chapter 1, Jesus entered into the throne room of heaven and was crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Satan was cast out of heaven because heaven wasn't big enough for both of them and Jesus had already defeated Satan. You can read in Revelation chapter 12 that there was a war in heaven. The devil and his angels fought. Michael and his angels fought. And there was found no place in heaven for the devil. And he was cast out into the earth. And the crowd sings in Revelation chapter 12, Now is come salvation and the kingdom of our Christ. The coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why we have Philippians chapter 2 that says, Therefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You have a king. And because He laid down His life, God divided the spoils of war with Him. Isaiah 53 and verse 12. And exalted Him to His own right hand. Ephesians chapter 1. Making all angels and principalities subject to Him. 1 Peter 3.22 And has given Him a name which is above every name. Philippians chapter 2. That every knee should bow before your King and they will. Worship Him this morning with me. When John saw Him in Revelation chapter 1, what did He do? Did he run up to him and hug him and say, I thought you had gone. Don't laugh because I'm not trying to be funny. You know, the world thinks they went up and put their hand in the hand of the man. John fell at his feet as dead. What was John's relationship with Jesus when they were on earth? Wasn't he the one that sat closest to him? Wasn't he the apostle that the Lord loved? Didn't he lie in his own bosom at supper? Didn't he? Don't you think he recognized Jesus Christ? Don't you think he saw some recognition that they knew each other? It was only a few years later. He fell at his feet as dead because the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ was eyes as a flame of fire, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His face and hair were as white as snow. His feet were as burning brass. And his voice sounded like the the sound of many waters. John had never seen nor heard anything like that before in his relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus was now glorified. And he said, "I I am... Alive. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. We have a victorious king. We do not have to be afraid of death. We do not have to be afraid of any enemy. I bring tidings of peace to you. The prince of peace has destroyed death and made peace with his father. I am an ambassador. Be ye reconciled to God. I love Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2 that explains Psalm 8 to me. In Psalm 8 it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast exalted him over all of thy creation. 
Hebrews 2 tells me exactly how it's fulfilled. And it's not because we have the Greenville Zoo. It's because Jesus Christ has been crowned with glory and honor and all things have been put under his feet. And he's coming, brethren. We're going to have some passages read to us about his coming. But let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He is coming. We'll look at some passages later in our second service about his coming, but let's just look at one now. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Are you one that has obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you obeying it every day of your life? Look at the difference that this passage tells us when he comes. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day, because our testimony among you was believed. I altered the order of the words for you to follow the sentence. Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming in flaming fire. He's coming with His mighty angels to take vengeance on them that know not God. I watched a DVD this past week, thanks to my brother Charlie, about Islam. It is a documentary about Islam. And I watched a pilgrimage to Mecca where two million ignorant people wandered around in a circle around a black box in the city of Mecca of Saudi Arabia where there was a little black meteorite that they're worshiping as the stone that came from heaven. They believe that Abraham is their father and that he brought Ishmael down to Mecca to offer him as a... Yes, let me repeat it for you. They believe that Abraham is the father of their religion, that he brought Ishmael down to Mecca to offer him as a sacrifice, but the Lord provided a goat to replace him. And so there is a seven-day feast and festivities of them remembering Abraham's journey, Mohammed's journey, Ishmael's deliverance. They eat a goat. They throw pebbles at the devil. And now listen, I can stomach a whole lot. I couldn't stomach it. I was studying this subject all week, too. That didn't help. I had some things to say to the television. Because I want to tell you what it just said. He's coming in flaming fire to bring vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am not making fun of Muslims. I'm making fun of their religion. Their religion is idiotic. They claim Ishmael is the father of their religion. And the Bible tells us very plainly that Ishmael is the rejected one. Can you believe it? They wander around a meteorite thinking that they're making peace with their God. And everywhere you look is a crescent moon on top of every mosque. 
because they're still worshiping the moon god of the Arabians that they've been worshiping since the days of Ishmael's descendants. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you that he's coming. I tell you that he's coming in vengeance and flaming fire on all them that have not submitted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I tell you as well that he is coming to be glorified and to be admired in all them that believe. And do you know what? Do you know how Paul knew that they were going to be part of that crowd? Because you believed in that day when I preached the gospel to you. Have you believed the gospel this morning? Have you been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you owned Him as your King and Lord? He's coming. And He's coming to be glorified and to be admired by all of us that believe. Let's look forward to that day. Let's work for that day. Let's wait for that day. Let's sing about that day. Let's prepare our hearts for that day to receive our Lord Jesus Christ. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.